0: Good morning. Beautiful day in Iceland, and I'm delighted to be here with you. Tom Ivester, an alcoholic. Hi, Tom. I'm a member of the Primary Purpose Group, not in Reykjavik, but in Southern Pines, North Carolina. And my sobriety date is Groundhog Day of 1957. <clears throat> it's amazing I'm alive. Easy. <laughs> Never thought I'd make this. And uh, I will promise you that the day I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, I never intended to stay sober this long. (laughs) If you're new and you've got some notions of not staying, don't stay too long because they'll get you. And (laughs) first thing you know, you're just stuck here for life, you know. (laughs) Never meant to get as good as I've gotten. I, I, I had no real interest in getting good, and I've gotten so darn good that it's ridiculous. I, I, I'm boring, and <laughs> <laughs> now I tell you what I am is is probably the most fortunate man on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. Been blessed with a way of life that's um, incredible. You know, that that a, that a guy like me would make it for as long as I have in the program. And probably just as amazing, if not more, is the fact that it has not been a long-suffering journey. Uh, I've been blessed with tremendous experiences, with tremendous rewards, in every department of my life. I've become a citizen of the world. And there are few places that I can go and not have friends. And, and, And boy, that is really something for a guy who lived in complete isolation. That's a great thing. I'm still, I'm doubly blessed in that I'm still just as dynamically involved in the program today as I've ever been. Still just as enthusiastic as I've ever been. I've never been more fired with creative thinking than I am right now. And at my age, I'm supposed to be senile. And... (laughs) Sometimes I think it kicks in, but for the most part, you know, I can function reasonably well. So it's, a, it's an amazing thing. I, I, I guess if there were any real kind of an objective, any, anything that I would like to get done in our visit here this morning, I, when we get through, I would like for you to know that this guy is an alcoholic of the hopeless type. I would also like you to know that there is hope for those of the hopeless type, and that there really is hope for a life beyond your imagination. Now, that's an ambitious thing, but I think if I wanted to get anything, you get some what? Whoa! Watch it! I'm being attacked by an Icelander. (laughs) (laughs) It's rough when you get dry. Thank you, Tony. Tony's been a wonderful host. Guys have really been great to me. He was also my translator. Went to the Thursday night uh, meeting over at the uh, Elano Club. And he translated into my ear. Took two showers to get the saliva out. <laughs> uh, it's been great. I've had a great chance to get around the city and visit some, so. It, <laughs> He's going to do it again tomorrow night. <laughs> uh, I am glad to be. I want to visit just a minute before I get into some serious going. Uh, I was in Texas last week, and uh, that's not too hard duty. And I was having dinner with a guy, and he wanted me to try a, a special dish that he had. It was an appetizer, you know, before dinner. And it looked interesting. I thought it was fried eggplant or something. And I said, what is that? And he was just sufficiently evasive to make me more suspicious. And so I said, no, I'm not going to have it, but tell me what it is. And he said, it's lamb fries. Well, I'd never heard of lamb fries. And I said, what is it? And he said, uh, well, it comes from Iceland. And then he told me the origin of lamb fries. If you don't know, ask your neighbor now. I'm not going to get too graphic with this. But I'll tell you, the lamb that donated the fries is not happy about it at all. I I didn't really believe it when he was telling me what that was. So when I got off the plane, I didn't tell the guys, but I was watching the lambs in Iceland. (laughs) They are a very nervous crew. They <laughs> uh, that's unreal. <laughs> you guys gotta be gentle to the <laughs> Well, uh, let me get going. I gotta, Runyon's got an important engagement. He's he gotta get out of here. He made me promise not to talk more than an hour. I won't talk longer than an hour. It'll just seem like it. (laughs) I'll talk as fast as I can, and it'll seem like slow motion to you. You This language is difficult enough when you speak it slowly. But you guys are... I haven't understood a single word yet. (laughs) Um, I I am a, a truly blessed guy. I don't think I'm anything unusual as a member. I'm an average slice of life my experiences might have been a little different, but the alcoholism was exactly the same. I, I want to just kind of start and I'd really like to focus on, oh, I'd love to just tell my drunk story. I love drunk stories. I absolutely love them. Especially mine. I just love to, I could tell that thing all day. And <laughs> with great relish. But I'll, I'll just kind of cut to the chase a bit. I've, I'm a guy, uh, I found myself, in a maximum custody penitentiary at, at the age of 24. And, uh, obviously, I guess any, anybody who found themselves in such a situation would be mystified and bewildered and, 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 and totally hopeless, and I was all of that. And I'm, I'm 24 years old. It's a point in life when most, most folks are just getting started living. They're just getting out of college, just settling into a career, just getting married, starting a family. It's a green time of life. And at 24, I'm sitting locked up like a wild animal in a penitentiary, absolutely convinced that I will never leave that place alive. I believe that. And so I looked at the the situation I was in. There was no future. I didn't even give thought to a future. At that point in my life, if I'd had any real desire for anything, I think it could be best described as a desire to just disappear. I just wished it were done. And so to look at that and look at the futility of it was bad enough, but then add to it that I was serving the sentence for a crime of which I had no recollection whatsoever. Then or ever. The crime I committed was the one that I know anybody in this room can identify with. But thank God for most alcoholics, the greatest fears are never realized. The greatest fears are bad dreams. And they don't happen. But sometimes they do, and for those, they become real nightmares. And I was one of those. I was serving a sentence for taking the lives of two people. I could be nice to myself and say that I had an unavoidable accident. That was certainly true in the sense that I didn't intend to do it. Two young people were trying to cross the street that I happened to be driving on, blind, drunk, blacked out, and ran them down and killed them. So not only the surroundings, but the, the weight of having committed a crime so horrible that there's no adequate punishment. There is no adequate punishment for a crime like that. So I'm looking at a lot of troubling things. And I wasn't just some nice, young, preppy fellow on the way to a party who had an unfortunate accident. That culminated a life that by any measure would have been better had it never happened. I was 24 years old, and when I looked back at my life, I couldn't and can't to this day, and this is absolutely true, not melodrama or overstatement. When I look back at that life, I could not think of one thing that I had done to satisfaction or to real completion. None. I couldn't think of one person, not one person, who wouldn't have been better off if they had never met me. Everybody that I was associated with got hurt, disappointed, used, abused, misused, lied to, heartbroken, whatever. And so that was my legacy. And so here I sit as a 24-year-old guy, having lived a life like that. What would you bet on that case? Not much, eh? Not much. I wouldn't have bet a cent. Absolutely not. I'd been drunk all my life, but I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. I just thought I had a situational kind of problem. (laughs) I didn't really believe I was an alcoholic. I'd had, you know, we use the word potential a lot around here. Uh, I'd been told one time that I had an unusual level of potential. (laughs) Only one guy ever told me that. I had a 1,000 tell me I was the most worthless piece of junk they'd ever seen. I never heard that. <laughs> I remembered the potential. And I didn't really believe I was an alcoholic. I thought I was a budding rocket scientist that was getting ready to happen. And one of these days, man, if I can just get off on the right foot, go get them, tiger. I believed that. <laughs> Meantime, I'm going right down the sewer. Yeah. But I didn't believe that. But if you picture that guy, if you picture that guy and kind of fill in, you know the story. It's a a fairly typical story of alcoholism. If you just sort of forget the cage that I was in and forget the the unfortunate things that happened, it's the story of alcoholism. Because here's a young guy on the rocks, and life's over. It's no longer working. It's no longer functional. And everybody could see that except me. What does it take to turn a case like that around? What what does it take to really give a nudge in the right direction? Yeah, I, just like you, have had God knows how many turning points in my life. Most of the time, I turned the wrong way. (laughs) But let me share with you some turning points that moved it in the right direction. And, And some of them are incredibly simple. Most profound things are simple, and when I look back and what what happened that that started to turn around one day now i was a, I was extremely I was extremely extremely affected by what i'd done. You know I lived under an absolute mountain of guilt you know, i didn't communicate with anybody i didn't carry on conversations i didn't visit i didn't ask anybody where they were from. I never spoke to anybody unless they asked me a direct question. And uh, one day, a fella who worked at the prison called me out for an interview. You now, a lot of people did that, but this guy was, a, was kind of a social worker type of fella. And he called me out and did a standard textbook social work inventory or uh, 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 interview. I know that now: family history, social history, criminal history, all of that stuff. I'd been through that many times with all kinds of folk. I never had anybody evaluate my case and make but one diagnosis. You're an alcoholic, you're a drunk, you're a bum, you know that. I'd heard that always all of my life. It never had any effect on me. You know. I always thought they had sort of faulty assessment tools or something. I, I, I never really believed in that stuff. And when they would get through declaring the hopelessness of my condition, they would give me suggestions that were well-intended but totally useless, like, why don't you quit drinking? (laughs) Well, I never gave any serious consideration to that. I, I mean, quitting drinking was not on my menu of things to be yearned for. Yeah, I know, you might have been just dying to get here. I wasn't. Well, I guess we were all dying to get here, but... But I didn't really want to stop drinking. I kind of felt sorry for people who didn't drink. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, people who didn't drink, to me, they looked like they didn't drink. I mean, they're stern-looking people that they look miserable, <laughs> look uh, unhappy. And, gee, I mean, even drunk I felt better than they did. I, I, <laughs> at the, uh, so I, never, I never wanted to be like that. that. Those were not good role models for me. So I never had any interest in that. I didn't like, you know, rolling around on the floor and throwing up and stuff like that, but it was worth it <laughs> for, for what I got. And so I didn't believe, you know, I didn't believe I was alcoholic, and I, I didn't have any interest. I, I tell you this I don't know if I was incredibly stupid or just uninformed, but it leads to the same thing. Until I was sober for a fair time in Alcoholics Anonymous, I never connected the first drink with the outcome. Never did. You know, I always thought when I took a drink and wound up in the wrong state, or in jail, or in a hospital with stuff broken I didn't even know had been hit. I I woke up one time married, for God's sake. (laughs) Now, that's really serious when you get into that. I mean, to a lady I didn't even know. Lamb hair. <laughs> she obviously didn't know me either because when she saw what she had, she left real quick. <laughs> but I mean, never when I would wake up in some bizarre circumstance, never once did I say, that, not that I recall, never once did I say, geez, I shouldn't have started drinking. I never thought of that. Yeah, I never understood when, here he comes again. I, I never understood, even when I got in AA, about what happened to the first, with, with, with a guy like me with the first drink. All right, thanks, Tony. Yeah. The, um, it sounded to me like when I heard alcoholics say it's the first drink to get you, that when they took a drink they just fell out or something or had a running fit or, or some kind of thing. Well, I never did that. Only thing I did when I had the first drink was take another drink. <laughs> then another one. Then another one. And then wind up in some cage somewhere in the wrong state or whatever. But I never connected that. You know, I didn't understand that something happens to me when I take the first drink that doesn't happen to other people. Never knew that. And and so this guy that interviewed me that day told me the same stuff. He said, You've had a lot of trouble with booze. I said, Oh, yeah. And, uh, He said, never had heard this before. He said, we have an AA group here at the institution, and I think you ought to go. It wasn't a demand or a mandate or, you know, it didn't put a leash on me and take me to the meeting. None of that. It was just like, say, if you're hungry, go eat, you know. and It was about that, that flat, you know, we have a group here, you ought to go. I'd never heard of AA in my life. Never had looked for it. I never would have paid any attention if I had, but I never heard the letters. And I don't think he explained it because I don't think he knew what it was. Somebody had told him, and thank God somebody did, that when you see a fella and he has a record that thick and it's all about drunk, tell him he ought to go to AA. And that's exactly what he did. Now that's not a monumental kind of intervention, is it? But here it is. I responded to the first suggestion I ever heard and have never looked back. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing what makes a, a huge turning point? One guy said, hey, guy, you got it. They fix it. You ought to go over there. Now, I obviously wasn't healed by that. But, but I never had another drink. And I walked into my first meeting. After that, that little session, he sent me a little note. And uh, said, "You can go to your first meeting february second of fifty seven and you had to have a, be on a list to, to to go because of the crowd I guess, and so I walked in. I was not pleased to be going to alcoholics Anonymous. I, 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 I I was at a place i don 't know if, if you 've ever been like this or not, but I was at a place that I was just so beaten, so absolutely beaten that I had no response left yeah, i mean i couldn 't even re- react. I was just like a noodle. And, and so I just sort of shuffled in there, like a gown of Thorazine or something, you know, and, and walked in my first meeting. and It was about the size of this. It was a big, big meeting. We had 300 members in that group. And uh, one guy spoke to me. They had an officer on the door. And he looked at my name on the shirt, Ivys, yes, sir. And he said, Sit down. And I sat down, and listened to my first meeting about Alcoholics Had no earthly idea what to expect. I I thought it would be some kind of a religious thing. I I could just imagine some evangelist or something, you know, with a lot of holy-roly stuff. (laughs) And I expected that, yeah. And and sure enough, that serenity prayer that we use was the first thing I heard. And I thought, yep, that's exactly what it is, yeah. It got me. (laughs) And, (laughs) And I didn't respond well. And then they did all the stuff we normally do with the readings and all that kind of thing. And then they introduced a speaker, and this fellow got up and told his story. And I tell you, now I had not been raised in a greenhouse. You know, I I had I had lived in a very uh, (laughs) bizarre world. But when I listened to that fellow tell his story, I was shocked. I thought, why on earth would he be telling some God-awful story like that to 300 hairy-legged convicts? It it made no sense to me. And, I mean, he could have bit a chicken's head off, and it wouldn't have bothered me anymore. I mean, I thought, that that is just crazy. And uh, to say that I didn't identify would be the understatement of the year. Uh, I didn't identify with anything about, about like a guy. He was a little short fellow, totally uneducated, and uh, and uh, <laughs> and and when he got through, I I I know that I left that meeting more confused than I was when I went in. And uh the amazing thing was that I was back the next week. As back the next week, nobody sent for me. <laughs> they wouldn't have come hunting me if I hadn't been there. They wouldn't even know I was missing. It'd just been a chair. But I was back. And I thought many times, I understand fully why I was back now, but, but I was kind of kind of mystified. I didn't puzzle over it. I just found myself back there the next week. Today I know exactly what that was, and I value what that was. That fellow who spoke that day was without question the most enthusiastic man that I've ever known. I mean ever known. What a, what a marvelous fellow. He was crude. His, 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 his language was atrocious. He, 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 was, he was certainly not an eloquent speaker. But he was the most passionate guy I'd ever seen in my life. And he just absolutely was on fire. He was always that way. And what brought me back to my second meeting was that magical spirit of enthusiasm that communicated to me that there's life after sobriety. Now, I didn't think that through. I just found myself back there the next week sitting there. I sat in Alcoholics Anonymous for many months, and I don't think I have ever been more out of place anywhere than I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't feel that I belonged. Now, I was 24 years old at that time, and since I'm now sober 47 years, you know that that makes me 63 years old. Or thereabouts, I guess. <laughs> I'm 24 years old. And 24-year-old alcoholics were not showing up in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1957, I'll guarantee you that. I was the youngest member in every meeting I attended for several years. That's a wonderful feeling now that I'm old and long of tooth. <laughs> It is not a wonderful feeling when you're the the kid on the block, and oh, God, deliver me from well-intended people. Yeah, they have guys walk up to me. How old are you, boy? Said, well, I'm 24, sir. <laughs> oh my God, you gonna quit drinking? I said, well, I was thinking about it. <laughs> And yeah, say, Oh God, you don't even know what drinking is, man. I was just getting started at twenty-four. You That's know, real encouraging, you know. And, or, or, or the kind that would come by and and I know that it was lovingly done, you know, I'd say, How old are you, son? <laughs> twenty-four. And then they kind of patronize you, just kind of pat you on the head, you know. Say, Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, thrill a minute, yeah yeah, yeah, I'm just a young, frisky guy, and I'm in a geriatric ward, yeah, I'm in here with all these weazened up old goats,, yeah, real thrill. I look at the future and it looked like a long gray tunnel. yeah, I mean I could not what on earth do you do if you don't drink? I didn't do anything I didn't drink. And so when I tried to envision the future, it looked like sad singing and slow riding. <laughs> I was not thrilled. You know, and, and I was, but, but I had just enough, that sort of teetering thing. You know, it's funny about, I think psychologists have a name for it. They call it approach avoidance behavior. You know, on, on, on the one hand, I would listen to somebody tell their story about getting their life together, and I would find myself feeling hopeful. Uh, you know, privately. But I'd say, geez, you think that could happen to a guy like me? And then on the other hand, I would find myself thinking about that long gray tunnel, and I'd say, oh, my God, what if it does? <laughs> what if it does? I'll be struck bone dry. And at that time, the life expectancy ahead of me was 50 years. Geez, th- that is a long, dry spell. And so I, I had really mixed feelings. I felt out of place. I, I really didn't believe. I knew I was too young. I knew I was too smart. And to add to that, I knew I was too bad. You know, a lot of people are embarrassed to be an AA or ashamed to be an AA. I was, I was ashamed to be here not because I was too good but because I was too bad. Because when you've committed something as horrible as I had done, it's awfully hard to justify breathing. Never mind looking for a new life. <clears throat> so there were a number of forces that militated against my ever, ever staying here long enough to stay. And so I was an extremely miserable guy for, for, for eight or nine months. I, you know, I, I you know, I. I applied to, to, to some extent that uh, I've always been a reader. I've always been a curious type of fellow, so I read everything we had. We didn't have much in those days, but but I read everything we had, read the book. And I was fortunate in that there were a number of things that, that really constituted turning points for me that, as I look back. You know, that man who spoke at my first meeting, and by the way, he became my first sponsor a year later, <clears throat> took me that long to get used to it. But a year later, you're a wonderful guy. <laughs> that was a huge turning point. Thank God I met somebody at my first meeting that demonstrated the joy of recovery and not some sad sack who'd stopped drinking and was so happy he could just cry. Yeah, I'm glad I, I met somebody with signs of life. And that brought me back. I, I was fortunate in that the group I went into, I started to say even though it was in a maximum custody prison, but maybe because it was in a maximum custody prison, was a powerful AA group. The recovery group at Jackson Prison in the state of Michigan is one of the finest AA groups I've ever seen. And thank God for that. Because it was a group. And what I mean by that, we don't have quality assessments of groups. But if you look at them on a continuum, you've got some that are overly casual, you know, that you can barely tell it's a meeting. And you got others on the other extreme that are well ordered and purposeful. And thank God I got into one that was well ordered and purposeful. And, and, and so I was given an introduction to the program that was logical and very, very useful. Not by visiting people from outside, but by other guys in the joint. The only difference was they were ahead of me a bit. And they explained what they had learned. They took me through, uh, an introduction to the steps. It wasn't like doing the steps, but they, they introduced me. First time first place I ever heard the term design for living, designed for living, was in that introductory thing, but it was guys that joined. I've never forgotten that. It was a logical, coherent, understandable explanation of what this is. That this is not some mystical thing that happens to a fortunate few, this thing called recovery. That recovery is a product of actions taken. That it's a logical design by which to live. And what was told to me and what I found to be true is that if I take the actions that are prescribed in the steps, I will have a changed life. I will have a change in my personality. And my motives don't even matter. If I will take the actions... My motives will get corrected as they go. And I know that because of what happened to me. And, and so I got introduced in a sound kind of way. I was a, I was a guy, I was a pretty aggravated case. If you, if you were here yesterday, we are talking about a spiritual thing. I was really tangled up in that department. And, and in a spiritual program, that's a huge barrier. I'm not going to dwell on the steps too much. They're only the heart of the program, you know, so I'll just kind of slide by that. So I won't dwell on it too much, but but let me, let me just kind of address maybe three different aspects of that in, in a global kind of way. You know, the first three steps in our program, to me, are the foundation upon which recovery is built. You know, they're the things that give me solid footing. They're the things that gives me security and gives me an assurance that I can actually stay sober. I know people, I know a lot of people, who have never done more than three steps. And if survival is all I care about, it is quite enough. If I'm somebody who can be satisfied with just not drinking for one day at a time, good, good, good. I can make it on that. But if you're an aggravated case like I am, the tiger that I rode into Alcoholics Anonymous didn't die. That sucker's still there. And he's still chomping away. And I'm not satisfied for survival. Now, I didn't know that at the time, but but I know when I got pushed in, and I started to work out a fumbling kind of grasp of that. I tell you where the in, in that foundation. I tell you where the huge, huge turning point came that changed the course of my life. I hope irreversibly, irreversibly so far. Where I really started to get what we call depth and weight in the program. Now I'm just kind of a lost, tragic face in the crowd. That's who I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of wistfully hopeful. That something's going to happen. I said I was an alcoholic because everybody else said they were. I didn't think I was, deep down. But I hated to be the only something else in there. So they said they were. Yeah, me too. Yeah, but it didn't mean a thing. I'll tell you where that changed. One day I went to a meeting, and the the second kind of group that I'd like to talk about, those first three steps to me have to do with my relationship with the power surrender about my relationship between me and and, and my survival with a power greater than myself. Powerful things. The second group that I want to just kind of lump together and talk about are four through seven because they have to do with my relationship with me, with, with my relationship with understanding who I am. What do I talk about when I say I'm an alcoholic? I went to a meeting one day. Innocent is one of those poor Icelandic lambs and uh, <laughs> I didn't intend to do anything life-changing. But a guy came and spoke, and he spent the entire meeting on the fourth step. It's all he talked about. Went into great detail about how to do it, how to illustrate it. it. Read out of the book, all that kind of stuff. Now, I knew what he was talking about intellectually. I would read that, and I understood the words. But the words and the message are not necessarily the same. And so I, I knew academically what he was talking about. So he got, got through that, and I went back to my cell after the meeting, and I said, okay, I'm going to try that. And so I sat down, took the obligatory old legal pad and uh, number two pencil, and what I intended to do was write a little story about how cruel life was and what a victim of circumstances I was. You know, that, that's really what I meant to write. because what I felt. You know, mentally, that's how I processed it made sense when I just was thinking about it. But, boy, you start putting that out in the open. So that's what I meant to do. I was going to write that little sad story. I would have probably shown it to anybody who wanted to see it. I started to write, and I'll swear to you this is exactly the way it happened. I started to write. I wrote two lines of what I had in mind. And I call what happened to me a lot of things. We call it a moment of clarity. Uh, I don't know what it was, but it was not anything startling or, or shocking or, or all that dramatic in a way. But I started to write that, and all at once it was as if I hit a wall. Yeah. And all at once I just stopped. And the charade was over. That life of illusion and delusion that had been my entire existence was over. And for the first, <coughs> excuse me, for the first, <coughs> saw myself in clear focus for the first time. Now, I didn't dwell on that. And um, This was instant kind of stuff. I came to that stopping place very quickly, changed and just started without any thought or preparation, just started to open up. And, and some people say it's hard to take an inventory. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. I could not have not taken an inventory that day had I wanted to not take it. Because when I opened it, it was like one of these geysers that builds up the pressure and comes out. And that's the way that was. You know, as soon as I opened up, (laughs) it was just a rush of stuff. And my hand flew trying to keep up with that tumble of thoughts that came out. And I, I, I started to scribble, roughly scribble things that I had never looked at or considered in my life, and I just unloaded. It wasn't a well-defined, thoughtful kind of an inventory. When I got through, I had three pages of rather hopeless-looking scribble. Nobody could have read it. Nobody's supposed to. That's my inventory. And I'll tell you this. I've done a lot of important day's work since then. I've never done one equal to that. In value, it was a crude-looking piece of work. It was the best piece of work I've ever done in my life, bar none. I've done, I've done. Now I'm I'm not an analysis freak. I've done three inventories in 47 years. I did the second one, as is laid out in the book, with the columns and a little more analytical. It did not have. The value of the first one. It had great value, but it did not have the value of the first one. Because when I got through with that inventory that day, I didn't know what to expect. I knew what the book said. And when I got through with it, I knew. Great. Thank you very much. What is that? Oh, is it? Okay. He's from Denmark. You've got to check these things. <laughs> that's how you get 47 years check these things (laughs) thank you very much but, but, but what happened was that I knew I knew at the depth of my soul that I was alcoholic not the young guy not the complicated case not the tragic case I knew I was alcoholic I knew that I had this illness. No question. No question. There's a place in our book that says almost exactly this. That, if close (laughs) anyway, I can't tell you what page is on. If I tell you a page number, I'm lying, or or I just say it by accident. I don't know where nothing is. (laughs) I can find it. But there's a place somewhere in alcoholism, the chapter about alcoholism, it says something like, it says this. We learned that we had to fully concede to ourselves that we were alcoholic. That's the first step in recovery. That's simple sounding, isn't it? But you think about that. Concede is a very important word to me. That's a private word. Personal word. That's an inside job. You know, I told you I was an alcoholic when I started. That's not conceding. That's identification. That's communication. That's saying I'm one, you one, let's talk. That's all that is. Concede is admitting to my innermost self that I'm beat. I am beat. I have an illness whose nature is such that if I take a drink of anything with alcohol in it, I cannot predict what I will do. Cannot predict how much I'll drink, how long I'll drink, or even what I'll do when I drink. And I knew that that day. Tremendously important thing. You know, I truly believe that surrender is the touchstone of new of new life. And 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 that's what happened that day. That I have never hear this. Forty seven years later, I have never for one second doubted it. Not for one second. That fight was over, fellow alcoholics. That fight's over. And I conceded defeat. It's done. I'm whipped. I'm not somebody who wised up and said, Gee, sober looks so much better, I think I'll try it. Forget it. That's not even on the table. I'm not a guy who has decided that I won't drink. Not in my language. I'm a guy who can't. Drink. And the fight is done. It is done. And I lost. But God did ever gain. Yeah. That day I became a a real member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody knew it but me. (laughs) Nobody cared but but me. (laughs) It's not a public deal. Didn't sign anything. But from that day to this, I have never gone into a meeting without knowing 100% why I was there. I sat in the meeting Thursday night with Cody, uh, Cody spitting in my ear. (laughs) I knew why I was there. I knew why I was there. I've never been the lost tragic face in the crowd another time. I'm a man on a mission. I know why I'm here. I'm not here to be entertained. Nor am I here to entertain. You know, I'm here because there is a magic that happens when we share honestly <laughs> from the heart with someone like us. There's something happens. And so I've never been the same man. So That was a, <clears throat> talk about turning point, that was a huge turning point where I anchored in this thing. I'm, I'm going to rush because Runyon will get mad if, if I go too long. He lost his hair worrying about speakers to speak too long. <laughs> and the last half of that, you know, the last half of that little group of four steps, you know, talk about relationship with self. You know, there, there, well, that fifth step was monumentally important. You know, to me, it's the freedom steps. Yes, the freedom step. That's the first place, I won't dwell on it, but... But but when I did that first step, what I saw later was it was the first crack in the, the 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 wall of self-centered isolation that I'd lived in for my entire life, and it was the beginning of freedom. And then uh, 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 we uh, some of us were talking this, earlier this morning about yeah I think there's an awfully important thing that happens in the the second two of those four steps, in six and seven. Yeah, When I first got to those, I, I really thought they were filler material. I really did. I discounted the value of those. They looked like a rehash of two and three to me. And I, I really just sort of wrote them off and said, no big deal. Yeah, it's almost a given. Not so. What I found was that that is an enormously important decision point where, you know, I've taken a look at it. I've taken a look at the fact that I'm beaten up. I've taken a look so that when I say I'm an alcoholic, I understand that I'm not just talking about being a drunk. I'm talking about being a guy with a condition whose nature is such that if I'm left unattended, I will drink again, even though it makes no sense. You know, so I've understand something about what my illness is, that it's not a bad habit. And so having that information, what do I want to do about it? what I want to do about it. And what six and seven are to me are a pivotal point where I decide if I want the new life or not. We made his decision to turn our will and our life. No, that's the third one. What's six? It's, oh, entirely ready to have God remove these defects of care. Thank you very much. I need a lot of coaching. <laughs> entirely ready. And I tell you what, that might have been a welcoming beacon to you. It was scary to me. I, I told you in the beginning, I was not interested in getting overly good. And I thought, how on earth can you do something like that without being pure? You know, and I thought, I'm going to be struck pure and dry, and I'll never smile again. And that, that was sort of the thoughts I had. And, uh, and, and that hugely important thing of shifting, I, I hope I can make this clear so that at least you'll know what, what happened to me that what happened here was the name of the game changed. The name of the game changed. From somebody who is self-focused, who sees Alcoholics Anonymous as only a place to go and get what I need, to a way of life. There's a... Alan and, and Baldor and I were talking this morning about where we lose people in recovery. When I'm working with folks going through the program, it seems to me that one of the critical junctures where we lose people is in this transition that's laid out in six and seven. You get somebody that's gung-ho, that's doing the steps, that's going through four and five, and then comes that critical point where the name of the game changes and we start to get solution-oriented. And we start to see AA as a place where real important work occurs. A lot of folks that I work with never get beyond seeing Alcoholics Anonymous as a place to go and get something and get on with my life. And never see it as a place where real growth and real work and real purpose attends. So... Being ready to turn loose and let a a new life occur, hugely, hugely important. It's where AA becomes a place. It's starting to become a place for me where I go and do my work and where I develop the new way to put this way of life to work. Hugely important. And then the the last group that I just skate by real quick so we can get out of here uh, sometime Uh, is... Eight through, I'll just loop them all, eight through twelve. To me, those are the steps that, about restoration. About how do we get restored to our proper place in the world, and how do we find the place where we're going to be of maximum usefulness. That's that's what those are for. We were talking a little earlier about, one of the few advantages of being old is that I had a chance to meet our founder. Uh, Bill Wilson. I went to my first international in Toronto in 1965, primarily to meet Bill. And uh, one of the things I treasure was a little meeting that that uh, that I sat in with him, talking about traditions. He was talking about anonymity and and you know that spirit of humility. And, and one of the things he said that was extremely important to me was that AA, our program was never intended to be a furtive hiding place for alcoholics. That's not what AA is about. This is not about getting in a bunker and hiding from the world. He said, that was important to me because I didn't want to live my life in a tunnel-like existence. And that's what it sounded like. He said, "The, the logical outcome for Alcoholics Anonymous, if we apply these principles is to restore me to my rightful place in this world. Good news, eh? Anonymity is not about hiding. It's about humility. It's not about hiding. You know, nobody gives a rat's ass what I'm in. That's not the deal. It's about being willing to operate without recognition. Yeah, and, and so those steps that restore powerful, powerful stuff, and I'll just glide by them, but, uh I'd love to spend a half a day with them. But that eight and nine, to me, are powerful things. My, my belief is this, what it comes down to, and it may not be right, but it's mine, is that not drinking solved very few problems for me. What it did was reveal tons of problems. And that process of inventory and self-examination revealed very troubling stuff that when I did the 4 step, I thought that I had wronged every person I ever met. And I did if they would let me. But they, most people had enough sense to get away from me. I mean, they'd see me coming a mile away and get out. Some were trapped. And uh, eight and nine was, 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 was where I started to deal with that. My belief is this. Every time... I used, abused, misused, took advantage of, hurt any human being or institution. I paid for that with a piece of my soul. I didn't win. I lost. And every time I lost, I lost a piece of me. I lost a piece of my freedom. And my belief is that I will never be a free man until I go back and make right those wrongs. Everywhere that I possibly can. Now, you can well imagine, I won't go into detail about it, but you can well imagine from what I've told you that I had some horrendous amends to make, unbelievable amends to make, amends that I couldn't even imagine. How do you make amends to two people whose lives you've taken? I'm here to tell you that the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and the power of what's laid out in these steps will deal even with that. So I don't care what your situation is, if you're somebody who's tired of dragging the guilt, or somebody that's tired of dragging yesterday everywhere you go, the surgery is simple, very simple. Write it down, identify the wrong, and then the hard part is become willing to make it right. Powerful freedom, powerful freedom. And then the, the, the other steps are about making this a way of life. How do I put these principles to work in my life so that I can actually have usefulness and purpose? A lot of times we see 10 as an apology step, you know, where we sort of see what we did wrong, straighten it out. I think that's the least important part of step 10. Step 10 to me is about how I put these principles to work. How do I make these things come alive in my life? It's about how I'm living. It's about how I engage this. There's a place somewhere in there in the book that says... uh, of course, of course, or something like that. We're working on ourselves. Of course, we're we're, we're taking care of our needs, but our real purpose is to be of maximum effectiveness to go to God, with God and those around us, and of maximum usefulness to God and those around us. That's my purpose, and that's what the ten through twelve are about with me. Is about being maximally effective. Yeah, I, I mentioned yesterday in a workshop, and I. I know that sometimes if you, if you don't understand the spirit, then it sounds a little hokey. But I'm a guy, you know, the way I live in this world is about me. It's about my principles. It's about my integrity. It's about what I'm committed to. And what these steps tell me is about how I need to conduct myself. I treat every person that I meet. Every person that I meet, I don't care whether they deserve it or not, but I treat every person that I meet as a lady or a gentleman. <clears throat> I treat them that way until they prove to me that they're not, <laughs> and then I'll get away and let them enjoy their misery. You know, I won't participate in it. You know, so so I'm not a doormat. But I'm somebody who believes in practicing these principles in everything that I do. And when I get on that plane Tuesday, I'll be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous on that plane, and I will be of maximum service to whatever extent I can. You know, on that plane, I spend a lot of time on planes, and uh, so a lot. Of, it's amazing what happens when you come out of the shell. You know. I've always been fairly open, but uh, for many years on planes, you know, you, you know how you get into idle chatter on a plane? You know, these people where are you from? Where's your dog's name? You know, all, all that kind of stuff. It's really life-changing stuff. <laughs> and uh, so usually people say, where are you going? I say, well, I'm going to Reykjavik. Good God, what for? <laughs> and... Say, well, I, I, for many years, people would say, well, what for? And I'd say, well, I'm going to a conference. They'd say, oh, what's it about? And for years, I would not lie. I would just be evasive. You know? I'd say, oh, it's about alcoholism, you know, it's, it's, you know, something like that. Well, I mean, that's not lying, but it's certainly avoidance, isn't it? And one day, it I, I dawned on me, I said, why am I doing that? I mean, that's stupid. Why am I doing that? What's the basis? And the best I could do, it either had to do with fear or pride. It had nothing to do with anonymity. It had to do with fear or pride. And I said, shoot, I'm not going to do that anymore. I mean, if you want to know, if you don't want to know, don't ask me. So I started telling people. I mean, if they ask me, I'd tell them where I'm going. I usually finish by saying, you want to join? (laughs) <laughs> I've, I've never had a taker, but I get a lot of offers. I, well, I mean, that's the way. I mean, see, that's free. That's free. Here it is. I have never had one single person who was less than interested. I'm not talking about tolerance. I'm talking about animated interest. Not a single one. There's no way of telling if that had any value or not. But I'll guarantee you it has more potential for value than saying, oh, I'm going to a conference that's about alcoholism. I guarantee you it's got more than that. And what it does is makes me free. I don't have to hide somewhere. I can take my place in this world and I can give my gifts to anybody that will have them. Yeah. And, and to me, that's what this is about. It's about getting well to the point that I can take my place and fully function. What Bill said in that meeting that I I listened to, and, and, and it's absolutely true, and I'd say it to you, that if we do this program the way it's laid out, there will come a day when I will be able to walk the face of this earth and look any person I meet in the eye. I'm here to tell you, Bill was right. I know of no place on this earth that I can go today that I'm uncomfortable to meet anybody. God, what a freedom! I don't look at shoes <laughs> much anymore. You will be barefoot; I don't even know the difference. You know that? What a freedom! That I could say to anybody, and I'll say it to you: Ask me anything you want to ask me. I don't care what it is. If there's anything that I'm not willing to tell you, I need to take a look at what it is that's holding me up, because my life's an open book. That's freedom. That's freedom. And that's the surgery of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the narcotic for that tiger that starts to make me feel free and to be able to joyously engage in life, to go find my place, Yeah. I believe for every one of us here today, for every one of us who comes here and practices this program, an avenue of service will open for us. Now, I don't know what it will be. Yours will be different than mine. You'll do missionary work to Denmark. I know that. And <laughs> straighten them all out. You never know what your avenue of service is going to be. But I'll I, I tell you this for whatever it's worth. It's just my belief. It doesn't make it right, but it, it's surely my belief that every one of us will come to a point where an avenue of service will be apparent. And we will either step forward and accept it or we will fearfully step back or selfishly step back. My belief is that the quality of my recovery without question will depend on how I respond. If I choose to selfishly withhold what I'm, I think, obligated to share, I'll be the loser. And I will diminish the world in which I live. Deep down, deep down inside, I believe the duration of my recovery will be limited. Because to me, service is a logical part of recovery. It's not an outside activity. It's an extension of recovery. It's a part of recovery. You don't treat self-centered isolation by isolating. You treat self-centered isolation by engaging in the world. Well, that's what happened. And uh, I tell you the power of, gee, whiz, be patient running. We're getting ready to go, buddy. <laughs> I'll I, I, I just get you out of jail right quick, and then we, then we... well, you're already out of jail. You know, the prison, the tightest prison I was ever in in my life was the one I lived in, just like you. <laughs> I became a free man, locked up like a wild animal for the first time in my life. <laughs> Found useful purpose, purposeness, real feelings of worth, locked up in that place. Powerful program. I don't care where you are or what your situation is. I've known people that had no use of any limb <laughs> who were happy people. Yeah, doesn't matter. <coughs> so that's what happened. And, 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 and so what happens as a result of this stuff? That you know, I said I wanted to give some hope, and, and, and I do, because I know that uh, I, uh, most people in, in Iceland are extremely wealthy. <laughs> but I, I, I know that from eating in some restaurants. You better be wealthy if you're going <laughs> to... <laughs> but sometimes hope is weak. And when I got started in this thing, you know, when I left the institution, you know, I had dreams, of course, like any man. I, I had dreams, little dreams. Yeah, I, I just wanted to be able to do honest work. I'd never held a job for a year in my life, never. I wanted to do that. I'd never been a citizen, Ever. I never voted. I never paid taxes. Yeah. Never added to a community. I tore communities down. I didn't build them up. I <coughs> won't do that. Wanted to have a friend. I wasn't sure I ever would again. Yeah. Wanted to have a little trust. Those are little things. Most of us take them for granted. Well, I'm here to tell you that dreams come true in space. But when I walked out of the institution, that's who I was. I was just that guy, didn't have a clue what the future might be. I had a lousy job, but I loved it dearly because I was, I was physically free, and an exuberant fellow in, in, in my life. Uh, I didn't make much more money on that job than I did in the penitentiary. I, I was a barber in there and made a lot of money. But, boy, was I ever grateful. I got immediately active. I, I didn't have a, a probationary period. I got immediately out I the meeting the first night and every night for a long time. Second week I was out, some guys said, come over to the prison with us. They did an AA group over at a little prison of not far from where I live. I said, oh, man, they're not going to let me in there. They may not let me out, you know. <laughs> and, and it was a simpler day. And they said, "I oh, come on, it's all right. So I went. Here I am two weeks out. And I'm back as somebody, (laughs) it wasn't that much message at at that time. Uh, I'm back trying to help somebody in a situation I just left, you know, different state, different place, but but same setting. And I thought, boy, isn't this something? Now you talk about the land of beginning again, you talk about hope, you talk about what can happen. Two months after I was out, two months, I was named outside sponsor of that prison. I'm a trusted servant. (laughs) <laughs> I'm the guy who's trusted with the entire deal there. I, I could not have been more affirmed if I'd have been elected governor. I, I mean, absolutely unbelievable. The same time, about the same period, my parole supervisor came to me and he said, Tom, you're real active. anything." And I said, yes, sir. And it concerned me because I thought he was going to tell me to slow down. I knew it wouldn't. And, and he said, wouldn't it help you if you could drive? And I said, yes, sir, but I can't, as if he didn't know. You know, you know he certainly knew my history, and it was obvious that driving was... You know, when I left the institution, I had letters that big on my parole paper, this man's a never-operated motor vehicle. And I took that as a fact of life. So I told the guy, and, and uh, he said, well, let me check it out. <laughs> a little later, he called me, asked me to meet him at the Sears store uptown. That, it sounds like like Mayberry, really, that uh, that's where the driver's license agency was. My sister drove me up, I pulled up front door, saw my guy, went back there. He's talking to the guy who's the license man. So I go up and we visit. Yeah, you know, we just talk about fishing or whatever. And we never did talk about driving. And so we got through talking he got through talking. I'd have stayed there all day, but he, he got through talking, and the guy handed me a driver's license. He didn't even ask me if I could drive. <laughs> no test, road, written, verbal, nothing. <laughs> Didn't even pay for it. Uh, you know, that's got to be illegal. That, there is no way. <laughs> but they here 45 years later, I think. <laughs> Still driving. <laughs> is that unreal or what? I mean, that is just so unbelievable. Uh, and uh, i tell you what I believe. I, I've had a lot of people say, well, you must have been well-connected. Yeah, You bet. You <laughs> bet. I was really well-connected. The sheriff and I were great friends. <laughs> what I believe is that when we give ourselves to this program and we start to practice it as a way of life, when God's got work for us to do, the walls come down. And I don't care what they are. They come down. I know that not only on my unbelievable case, but the hundreds and hundreds that I know. You know. Miracles happen so often here, they're almost commonplace. I mean, we barely notice them. Five months after that, I was elected the district committeeman for my area. The, the people in 12 cities asked me to be their trusted servant. Tremendous affirmation. Two years after I was out, sitting in my house one day and. A fellow from the state prison system called me and uh, asked for Mr. Ivester. So I got on the phone, and and he said, Mr. Ivester, we're expanding the rehabilitation program in our prison system. We were wondering if you would consider accepting a position. And the first thing I said to him was, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> and uh, I'd met the guy one time, and, and uh, he'd visited where I sponsored that group. And God knows why he called me. I, you know, Now, here's what was historic about that phone call. As of that day, there had never been an ex-con in history anywhere on this planet hired into a correction system. And I knew they weren't going to start with me. And so, obviously, I knew that. And so what I said to him was, geez, I've never thought of it. Nobody else had ever thought of it. I, I, I said, I would love to do something like that. And to myself, you know what I said. Ain't no way. But there was. When God's got work for us to do, walls come down. Come down. <laughs> I was hired. I, I went to work as a rehabilitation officer in the, in the prison system. and An unbelievable thing. You know, I, I, mean, I had to go through a little thing of figuring out how to balance. How do you go from being a, a subject of a system to an administrator of a system? It's, a, it's not a minor transition. And there was nobody to discuss it with because I'm the only guy I've ever been there. So I, I had to use God, traditions, and everything, get you know, old to figure out how I fit. And uh, so I went to work. Loved it. Loved it dearly. I, I, I didn't take a vacation for nine years. I, where would I go? My God, I'm in hog heaven now. What would I do? <laughs> and uh, I just gave it everything I had. And you know, an amazing thing happens. When, when you do good work. People will tend to seek people who do good work. And there's a hunger for folks to take leadership roles. I didn't know all that. I was just working. I'm just doing the best I know I have. But I started getting moved upward. You know, people started inviting me to take on more responsibility. I moved into supervision and then into management and then started directing programs. And, and one day, now, you bear in mind who I am. One day the head of our system, the top dog fella, Asked me to come by in his office, he had a little something he wanted me to do. And so I went by. Normally, he would want me to pinch hit for him, making a talk or something like that. And he said, Tom, I would like for you to take over an institution as warden. And (laughs) I will tell you something. Even though I was in the system, this is unheard of. And when I got up off the floor, I I said, boss, come on, man. I don't want to beat a man. I, I don't want to be the guy turning the key and all this kind of stuff. You know, I, I, it had no real appeal to me. I, I just seemed so far away. I guarantee you of all the things that a guy ever fantasizes about in a penitentiary, that does not make the list. You know, just, uh, <laughs> one of these days I'm going to get out here and run one of these suckers. You know, <laughs> I can't forget it. And... Uh, so I asked him what he had in mind. He told me. I said, will you let me think about it? He said, of course. Take five minutes. <laughs> I took the five minutes. I went out, I pray my best when I do it quick. You know, I was to pray and running up down the hall pray. And it, that, it, so I, I decided that it would be worthwhile, and, and so I did. And I, it launched 20 years of my career in which I ran institutions and uh, the only reason I did it was because I felt that I might be able, with some power and authority, I might be able to do some things that needed done, and that was surely the case. Uh, I was sort of the go-to guy. I'm a, I'm a developer. I'm, I'm not somebody who's I I don't like to run stuff. I like to build stuff. You know, I like to create. And I like to develop. And I'm the kind of guy, if you want it run smooth, don't get me. I'll tear that sucker up the next day and try to build a new one. Got, and, and that's the way I do it. I'm the guy who developed new, new things in our state, and wonderful, wonderful thing. And one day I realized that I had uh, I'd gone to the top of my profession. And uh, now I'd bothered to finish my education in the process. And correctional administration, I mean, I didn't, there's no great market for ex-convicts. I, I promise you that. There is a market for well-trained professionals And uh, I finished at the top. I I discovered one day I was the oldest employee in the system, and I never intended to be that. And also found that I would make as much money not working as I made working. So, geez, even I could figure that out. (laughs) I'm going home. And I had been AA focus, sort of coy, they're they're, they're clever thinkers. They knew about my retirement before I did uh, in my state. And so when I retired, I had already been elected (laughs) by my AA buddies to be the chairman of Alcoholics Anonymous in Corrections upon retirement. So my retirement lasted about that long. (laughs) And and I went to work and... uh, uh, i tell you what motivated that. I'd been in a high-pressure career for 39 years, and I'm, I'm not a mild-mannered type of fellow. I'm a hard-charging type of guy. And um, I'd, I'd had a high-pressure, very active career, not only in the system, but I've never been less than, than extremely active in AA. So I've, I'm a guy who runs wide open. and. Um, when I retired, I, you know, I had some fleeting thoughts about maybe I'll just go rest a while or go to the beach or, you know, take whatever. Normal thoughts. And then when they asked me about that, I, I, didn't, I didn't dwell on it long, but I'll tell you what I thought. was, gee whiz, give me a break, you know. Let, let me just take a, a little few days off, you know, then get regrouped. And then i tell you what really compelled me. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to put anything on anybody, but take it for whatever's worth. I agreed to do it, knowing that it would be a demanding, encompassing kind of of activity. I was not naive about that. But the way I looked at it, when I walked out of that system, there was nobody, nobody in my state who even had remotely the kind of awareness I had of that system, nor the connections within that system. Geez, I felt like I'd hired half of them. You know, I'd been there so long, I hired everybody working there, it looked like. And so I had enormous kind of access to the system, eh? And if there's anybody in North America who understands more about the plight of the alcoholic in prison than me, I haven't met him, Nor anyone who cares any more about it than me. And the way I look at it, if I can take a look at a need like that and walk away, It's kind of like I was talking about earlier. If I could take a look at a need like that and know that I have the capability to bring something to it and walk away, I'll pay a price I don't want to pay. And so I've done that. And I've had a marvelous, marvelous time in in that thing. I'm still up to my ears. I probably always will be in activities that I'll I'll just say this uh, 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 kind of to sum up that whole business that Adam and I are talking a little bit before the meeting. I know that some of you have been here longer times than others. There are some relatively new people here too. What I believe is that as we grow in the program and we start to develop awarenesses and stuff, I think we have we come to a point where we have to get out of our own shadow. You you know what I mean? Where, where you, you only think in terms of what's immediately in front of you. And we have to think bigger than that. Yeah. Like, there are things that I can do very well. I'm good at setting up rooms. I was helping set up some chairs here this morning. That's an instinct with me. I believe a well ordered meeting place is, contributes to meetings. I, I've kind of, I can do that. That's one of my skills. I can welcome people to Alcoholics Anonymous, as good as anybody I know. I'm good at that. But if I want to be, like the book says, if I want to be of maximum service to God knows about us, I've got to think a little bigger than that, eh? Not just what I can do, but I have to think about my group. See, what I do is no better than the group that supports me. If I'm working with a guy individually or a gal individually, I can do that very well. But if I don't have a group that will deliver on what I'm promising, then what I'm selling is a bill of goods. So it's not enough for me to be an excellent, well-informed member. I also believe I have to be a working part of a group that supports not only me, but my work. And so when I go to a meeting now... I, it's been God knows how many years, many, since I've gone to a meeting and my agenda was what I needed. I mean, that's not even in my language. Yeah, I go to meetings with a purpose. That's where I do my work. I do a lot of service work. My most important service work is what I do in meetings. I troll for drunks. I look around, I spot them, man. I see a beat-up sucker coming in that door, and I say, man, go get them. And my blood pressure just shoots up at it, and my adrenaline flow. That's that's where I do my most important work. But I've got to be bigger than that. And a good group is not enough. How about the group next door? It's not enough for me to have a real good group. I'm no better than the, the fellowship that I belong to. So what I'm saying is that service is not a one-dimensional thing. It's not a static thing, it's something that grows and develops. And today I'm involved in all of the rudimentary things, but I'm also involved in some things that affect my my state and my nation in Alcoholics Anonymous. So wherever you are in this program, I hope that you'll that you will will create the vision to see this as more than some little 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 gathering of drunks doing business. And start to see it as the movement that it is. That's a life changing deal. Well, I ain't done but I'm gonna quit. <laughs> it's great to be with you. <laughs>